because, as I said, it's a technical breach. And so maybe I want to ask the Lord to really help us because we're going to need grace that I don't lose you in uh, the morass of information. That, uh, no, so come, let's pray. Father, we want to see you, Lord. We want to see who you are and see how you, you work and we want to experience you tonight. We want to worship you as the one who's worthy of worship. So, Father, tonight I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us where we're weak, and that you would come and be strong, that your anointing would do uh, what it needs to do in our hearts, so that every single person here would see you and glorify you. Father, give us faith that we would be a blessing to you, and uh, that our lives would be positioned and postured properly before you. So we just want to say, Lord, come and have your way tonight. Meeting is yours. Uh, have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the title that I'm sharing on tonight is Abraham, Mount Hermon, and God's Map for Salvation. It's a mouthful right at the start. And, uh, and maybe just to give you the heads up here, um, it's holiday period. So it's a time, it's actually quite nice because it's kind of like we're on, we're on rest. So I can't preach, let's go take the nations, let's go do those things because it's holiday period. And in holiday period, it's good to be refreshed. And I'm trusting tonight is going to be refreshing. But I also am trusting that God's going to really help each one of us to see Jesus as he is. That's really the hope that I have for tonight. That you will see him in a way more magnificently than you did before you came. And that that will change who you are and how you posture yourself towards God. So Abraham, Mount Hermon, and God's map for salvation. And to begin, I'm going to maybe start with an illustration. And I've even brought a torch named I live in South Africa. So maybe the two of you, would you stand here for me? <laughs> you want to pick up from some sort of Nice to have you guys with us. I need you as a, I'm going to use you as a silhouette on that wall. So if you can stand in such a way that I can. All right. So now they're next to each other. I want to see, is there a difference? Okay. Can you guys see that? Yes. All right. So that is what you call a shadow. And a shadow can show you a little bit about the real person. You can see that one doesn't have hair, <laughs> and you can see the one does. You can see the one's taller than the other. You can see a number of different things. You can see one's wider than the other. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And so a shadow is a, a lovely picture for us of, of um, actually someone that we can see projected on a wall. And the Bible actually uses, thank you, the Bible uses this picture of shadows a lot. Uh, and really what it does in the Old Testament, everything that's written is like a shadow for the one who would become Jesus. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you're actually seeing the shadow on the wall. And the point is that you'll get to know that shadow so well that when Jesus comes, you'll go, wait, I know that person. I know that outline. I know. And that's the picture. So tonight we're going to be looking at shadows. And remember the Bible says that the whole of the Old Testament, all the law, and all the prophets, in other words, the whole of your Old Testament, point to Jesus. So in every single book of, that, of the Old Testament, we see a shadow, a picture of Jesus. And we're going to see tonight Jesus through the shadow of Abraham and Mount Hermon. And we'll look at what that means and what, what that's about. And I actually have pictures of everything for you tonight, which I can't show you. That's going to make it interesting. But maybe to begin with this. The Bible and the story of God, the gospel, is really 
And I need to just give you the quick broad overview because that is the framework that we build on. The Bible says that God made man in his image and in his likeness. The problem is man was given free will and decided that he would rather live his way than God's way. And so in a sense, he booted God out of the garden or he was booted out of the garden when he rejected God. And there was this break between God and man. And something called sin came in. Now sin is a Bible word for doing things that God doesn't like. Doing things that from God's perspective are not good. And the problem with sin is it's got a corrosive element to it. And so when we do something that's not good from God's perspective, it has a way of corroding and, and, and breaking us inside. And maybe it illustrates, uh, a few years ago, I love surfing, and I was at the Dadesty, and I just climbed out of the water from a surf. And as I walked out of the water, I saw something in the water that I knew was man-made. And I picked it up, and it was a DGR, DG, no, DJI, Mavic Pro drone. It's like a 20,000 Rand drone. And I was like, whoa! The problem is, somebody had flown that drone and dropped it, dropped it in the sea. And when I picked it up, I could still see what it was. It was still, I knew it was a DJI Mavic. I knew, I know that drone. But, man, there was no way that thing was ever going to fly again. It had been battered by the sea. The salt had corroded its electrical systems. Its camera was battered and worn. And it was literally a shadow of what it should have been. And the Bible says that sin corrupts, like salt water corrupted that drone. And so what we end up with is humans, when you look at them today, they don't no longer look in the image of God. We are broken, we are a mess, and everything that we do ends up in a mess. Our families, our governments, our ESCOM, our, pretty much everything that humans touch ends up breaking, and as much as we try and fix it, we don't seem to get it right. And I mean, if you look at history, that's the lesson of humanity. Without God, we mess the world up. And we can blame God, but it's not God's fault. If God was still in the world, it would work. We've booted him out, and now we're living with the consequences. You got it. And so there's a consequence for rebellion against a king or a government. And what would that be? If you had to try and overthrow a government, what would that be called? Treason. And treason, hard treason, especially if you had to kill <laughs> the one, it's a huge offense. In fact, it should have historically been punishable by death. And the Bible says that because of sin, every one of us have sinned, and the wages, the consequence of that is death. It's separation from God. Humans, because of our rebellion, deserve the death penalty. But God so loved the world that he didn't want to punish. He didn't want us to perish. He didn't want to kill us. He wanted to save what he loved. And so he began, right from the book of Genesis, to show the world how he was going to come and fix what is messed up. Okay? And so every single book is a shadow of how he's going to come and what he's going to do to fix the mess that we have made. And tonight we're going to look at one aspect, one shadow. There are hundreds in the Old Testament. We're going to look at one, just well, Abraham and a part of his life. There's others I could pick up on. And a mountain called Mount Hermon. And we're going to tonight see Jesus through the shadow of the Old Testament. And uh, so our story begins 2,100 years before Jesus is born. 2,100 BC. It's a long time ago. It's like 4,100 years ago. Uh, it's nearly as old as Will. 
And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it starts with this guy called Abraham. And Abraham, in, the, in a world, is someone that's actually trying to know God. He's trying to walk with God. Um, and he becomes actually the father, the Bible says, of everyone who will one day believe. In many ways, Abraham, you and I as Gentiles, if we believe in Jesus, have been adopted into his family. We've been brought in through adoption. And he has become a father to us in a sense. Uh, okay, but I won't go there now. But the story starts, he's, he's, about, he's close to 100 years old, and him and his wife cannot have children. They've tried, in that culture, children were a very beautiful thing, and they've realized it's not going to happen. And it's come to the point that his wife, Sarah, about 90 years old, and the Bible tells us that basically everything inside of her that's woman that should be able to make a child is not working anymore. Her ovaries, her, everything is, is just, it's past its sell-by date. And Abraham is close to 100. And so there's no way that they can have a child. And God comes to them and he says in Genesis he says he's going to give them children. He's going to give them a child. And so we start in Genesis. You can open with me in your Bibles once. Genesis 17, verse 4 to 7. I will read it if you don't have a Bible here, so don't feel, don't panic. But I just hope you can follow me. Um, Genesis 17, from verse 4 to 7. Uh, normally it's up when we move, but I've got to give you a few moments. Genesis is like the first book in your Bible. Yeah. <laughs> 1747. Okay, so it starts like this from verse 4, chapter 17. As for me, God says, this is my covenant with you. Now, covenant is a binding commitment, a binding contract. So, God's speaking to Abraham and he says, This is the deal I'm going to make with you. It's a binding deal. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham, changing your name to Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. Now you've got to just pause and think. This guy's like a hundred. <laughs> so it's quite profound what God is actually saying to him. And then he says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So God says, I'm going to establish, I'm going to bring about something of a deal, a covenant that I'm going to make with you and your descendants that will last into eternity. The part I want us to pick up on here is this. God starts dealing with this guy and he says to him, Abraham, I'm changing your name. Now Abraham means, without the H, means uh, God is my father. And God says, you're walking with me like a son. And you're a prototype. I want all humans to walk with me like a son. But because we have this relationship, I've got a bigger plan than just you walking with me like a son. I'm changing your name to Abraham. And Abraham means the father of many nations, or the father of many sons. And so what God says is, I'm going to use you because you have a unique relationship to me. And in some ways you're a prototype of what I want all people to be like. And I'm going to, through you, give you children. And through those children, I'm going to establish a covenant with everyone that I can, that, that they will be children of mine, like you are my child. Do you get that? And so even the change of his name is a picture, a shadow of what God's going to do through the bloodline of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. Still with me? 
Okay. And then a little bit later, God comes to him again. And in Genesis 22, verse 17 and 18, you can turn there with me in your Bibles. Genesis 22, 17 and 18. And we'll stick in Genesis for the first part of this. So. All right. It says this. God comes to Abraham and he says, I will surely bless you. That's a cool thing to hear from God, by the way. I'm going to surely bless you. He says, and I will multiply your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He literally says to Abraham, go outside and have a look at the stars. Go. Do you see what, how many, can you count them? And Abraham's like, can't. And he says, you who can't have a child, I'm going to give you as many children and grandchildren and grandchildren. Nations are going to come from you. And then he says, your descendants will dispossess all. Your descendants will possess the gates of their enemies. And then he says this, And through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so God starts to drill down on how he's going to do this salvation, how he's going to fix the mess that's here. And he says, Abraham, it's going to be through your bloodline. You're going to have descendants. And your descendants are going to, people are going to come in, and the nations are going to come in into this inheritance. And then he says, in verse 18, and through your offspring, and I want to pause at the word offspring, because we're suddenly starting to get specific. Because the word offspring is spoken of not in the plural, in the Hebrew language, but in the singular. And so what God is starting to say is, you're going to have one of your descendants, one of them. And it's through this one descendant, this one offspring, that I'm going to do. And we know a descendant isn't, my daughter is not my descendant. It's always at least once removed. It's not Isaac, your firstborn son, that I'm going to do this through. But one of Isaac's children's children's children, one of them, I'm going to bring salvation to the world through. You got me? And this descendant of yours will bring blessing. All nations of the earth will be blessed through this one descendant of yours. So now we, we move 2,000 years forward to the time of Jesus. And in the Jewish culture, family lines were very, very important because they understood that their inheritance and their land and everything was allotted to families. And so they kept records of everything. And so if you were a Jew around the time of Jesus, you could actually go to the Jewish temple that had been built in 1000 BC, although the records went before that. And every single child born was anointed and kept at the temple. So you could go and say, gee, I wonder what my ancestors, you can sometimes go down Google and I think there's a couple of programs about your family tree and they'll try and work out what was there. They had the physical records. And so you could literally go and say, where is my family line? And go to the temple and show if you were in the family line of whoever. And so God starts to say, I'm going to use a specific family line, starting with Abraham and then through Isaac. And in Matthew, we don't have a scripture now, but Matthew, there's one and um, chapter one, one and two, the Bible tells us. And so Abraham had a son called Isaac, Isaac had a son called Jacob, and, and it goes on. And it carries on all the way through, right through to Jesus. And so Matthew is written before the temple, the Jewish temple that I've just mentioned was destroyed in 870 by the Romans. And so when Christianity burst on the scene in around the year 8033, any single person could try and work out, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he that descendant that comes from the line of Abraham? And uh, if he wasn't, 
well, then he's not the Messiah, because the Messiah has to be a descendant of Abraham. So we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. Okay? All nations will be blessed through you, and then you have to consider this. For the whole Jewish faith, 2,000 years, it's just Israel that's becoming saved. It's only Israel. If you want to go to heaven, you have to join Israel. <laughs> but from the time of Jesus, from the time of Jesus, suddenly, Gentile, heathen, are starting to get saved. And you and I today, are there any Jews here? Okay, then I could go, if you had to go down your bloodline, you come from a mongrel group. You know, Scots, Irish, English, Dutch, uh, it, it could be all over the place. It, there might be Africans, and they could trace their ancestors through Jews, and before that, cross, etc., etc., etc. All of us, and actually none of us here are saying we come from Abraham's direct line. We are the nations. We are the children that have now come into the promise that God made to Abraham like 4,000 years ago. Okay. If you believe in Jesus, and we'll get to this just now. Okay. If you believe in Jesus, if you don't, he's still out of this deal. Because it's through that descendant that, it, that it's going to happen. And so God drills down a little bit more, and a little bit later, Abraham is now 100 years old, Sarah's 90, and they still haven't had the child. It's been a few years since the promise. And they finally, the promise is fulfilled, and a young boy is born to them called Isaac. And Isaac becomes another shadow for us of what Jesus is going to do. And Isaac, growing up, we don't know how old he was when this specific event we can look at it happens. Some say five or six. Some say he may have been even up to, maybe even in his early 20s. We don't know. But we know he's still a young man. And God comes to Abraham. And now you've got to imagine this. God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a descendant. And that's a miracle. And when the promised child comes, it's a huge deal. And this is his only son. And through this boy, ultimately, all the promises are going to be fulfilled. And God comes to him, he says, in um, Genesis 22, verse 1 to 2. You can turn there with me if you want to. Genesis 22, verse 1 to 2. Sometime, another moment. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. At this point, you've got to imagine what Abraham is thinking, because he's just like, hang on a minute. But this boy is the one through whom you're going to save the world. This boy is the one through whom the promise ultimately will come because he's my only son and it's his children that will fulfill that promise. You with me? And so a few things and we start to see the shadow of Jesus here. Take your only son. Okay? So we know that the Messiah, the one who will come, will be an only son or firstborn son, only begotten son from God. Plus, do you realize that Isaac is born supernaturally? His mom and dad are not able to have children. He is a miracle, literally a physical miracle. It was impossible for them to have children. And so he's born miraculously by the hand of God. So when the descendant that God said would bring salvation would come, he would also be born miraculously. 
And the Bible tells us quite clearly that Mary fell pregnant without ever knowing a man. Now, that is a miracle. You don't just suddenly fall pregnant. And in fact, in the year um, 700 BC, this is a little bit after Abraham, but before Jesus is born, Isaiah, who was a prophet in Israel, actually said in Isaiah 7 verse 14, and listen to this. He's also he's starting to throw shade of Jesus. He says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a son to Israel. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Now Emmanuel means God with us. So Isaiah says 700 years before Jesus, the prophet, a woman who is a virgin is going to suddenly fall pregnant. And her offspring, miraculously born, will be God with us. And so you start to see the unveiling of how God is going to save. The descendant, the singular descendant that God promised Abraham is now starting to get pointed at to a number of different people. And then he's God's only son in John 3.16. We see, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have or receive the gift of everlasting life. So Jesus is also an only son for God. And then, whom you love. And again, do you remember when Jesus was baptized by John? He starts his ministry, he comes, he's 30 years old or so, and he comes to John to be baptized. And John is a prophet in Israel at the time. And John sees Jesus and goes, He's the one. He's the one. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. <laughs> Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And then, as he baptizes Jesus, God speaks and God says, This is my Son, whom I love. And so like Abraham has got an only begotten son, God will also have an only begotten son, and both will have the love of their fathers, but God will give up his son on behalf of Abraham's son. And the son that God gives up on the cross will be the descendants through whom the nations will be blessed. Are you with me? Yeah. Then God says to Abraham, as you heard, go take your son, your only son, and go to the region of Moriah, we'll look at that just now, and sacrifice him. There is a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Okay. So Abraham is going to take his son and put him, and you'll read this later, take him up the mountain, Mount Moriah, and put him on top of that mountain, put wood down, and put his son onto the wood to sacrifice him to God. A few thousand years later, Jesus would go up that same mountain and be put on a cross of wood to be sacrificed for the sin of the world. The promise would come. And so we move here to Mount Moriah, and I have this picture. I don't even know if this will work. You can't see that, it's just a blue, eh? Bottom line is that's Israel. And if you look at Israel, or sorry, Jerusalem, from the Mount of Olives, and I'm going to try and just, I want you to picture this, okay? So we just imagine this. You're standing on the Mount of Olives, it's about the same height as, as the city of Jerusalem, sprawled out between you. And Jerusalem is actually built on a hill, on a mountain, actually on two mountains. The one closest to you, if we're on the Mount of Olives, there's a valley called the Kidron Valley, and then across there's, a, there's a, a sprawling, a long stretch of finger of mountain called Mount Moriah. It's surrounded by three valleys, the Kidron Valley, 
the valley of Hinnon, which is a valley that goes below, and then there's a valley in the middle of Jerusalem called the Central Valley, and then there's, Jerusalem is built right through that valley onto another mountain called Mount Zion. So it's two, Jerusalem is built on two mountains. Abraham is told, and Jerusalem is not there at this time, this is just a wilderness. Abraham is told to go to the mountain that Jerusalem will one day be built on, to this one on this side, and to sacrifice his son in the place, you go to Jerusalem now, you can actually, it's literally on that little finger of land. It's not a very big piece of land. Okay. So God says, that's where you're going to take him to sacrifice him. For all the mountains on the planet. Then he says, he used to be, you to offer him a burnt offering. And a burnt offering, again, we need to understand something about a burnt offering. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3, the Bible gives prescriptions about what a burnt offering. In other words, a sacrifice you give to God. And there's different ways to sacrifice to God. Sometimes you can bring something and even eat part of your own sacrifice. Like you can have a bride with God and eat some, and he eats some. Sometimes a burnt offering would be completely consumed. You have nothing of your own left. You are completely giving this thing up. Okay, and you would normally take your lamb, you would slit its throat, um, and it would then it would then be utterly consumed. And but the thing is, Leviticus one three says, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd. You ought to offer a male, so girls get off this one, without defect. It has to be a perfect male, without defect. But that again is a shadow for us. <laughs> because Jesus came to the earth, and Jesus never sinned. He was without defect. And again, it's, it's, it's no coincidence that when he was being tried, and the Jews were trying to find some way to get rid of this guy because he's messing up their... their He's messing up their little world, the Jewish leaders. They can't find anything to pin him on. They can't justify killing him. And so eventually they they come up with this thing, well, he's a threat to Rome because he's saying he's a king. And when they bring him before Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate hears the accusations, interviews Jesus, and then says, I find no fault with this man. And in effect, a Roman governor is saying, he's perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. There's no reason for you to do what you're doing. And that is a picture again that God is letting the Jews know that the one that they killed on that mountain would have no sin. He never sinned. He was the perfect son of God. He lived the life we should have lived. But now we go to Moriah, this mountain that I just told you about. And Moriah in the Hebrews is a, a, Hebrew is a beautiful language because often a name has meaning behind it. And the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis will tell you Moriah the Mount Moriah has actually got two meanings behind it that join together so that you learn from this mountain a lesson. And the first possible, or the first part of it is this. Moriah in Hebrew comes from the Hebrew word Morah, which means teacher. And so when God named that mountain Moriah, he's saying, I'm going to teach you something from this mountain. And the second part is more, which is not Moriah's more. And more in Hebrew is myrrh. And myrrh is the main spice you use when you bring an offering to God in worship. And so the rabbis would say the mountain also can mean the place where you will learn to worship. And so if you put the two together, it literally means God saying, on this mountain, this piece of land, I'm going to teach Israel and the nations of the world how they can worship me. It's the name of Mount Moriah. And so Abraham goes up the mountain, and obviously the offering of his son is worship. But it doesn't stop there. 
Because a thousand years after Abraham goes up on that mountain, Israel is established later as a nation, and a young king called David becomes probably the greatest king of their time. And David wants to build a temple for God. He wants to build a place where God can be worshipped, where sacrifices for sin can be made. And so God shows him, and it tells us in 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, listen to this. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It is on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, place provided by David. So Solomon comes a thousand years after Abraham and says, God has shown my father David that this is the place he wants to be worshipped. And he builds a temple okay, that lasts for a thousand years. And it was finally destroyed by Rome in AD 70. And the Jews from the time that that temple was built would come to that temple three times a year and they would offer animals as a sacrifice for their sin because they knew that they were guilty and that they needed blood sacrifice because blood, the life of the animals and the blood. They would offer animals for sin, lambs for sin, and they would worship. And so the mountain is starting to teach Israel, Moriah, how to worship God properly. But it doesn't stop there because a thousand years after the temple is built, it's still there when Jesus is born. And Jesus will be taken to, guess where? Mount Moriah, the same mountain. And Moriah, if you look at it from this from this side, you'll see there's the, the Valley of Gehenna here, you can see the old Jerusalem here. Then over here, there's now what's called the Dome of the Rock. If you ever see a picture of Jerusalem now, you'll see this big, horrible, gold dome thing in the middle. Now that's a Muslim shrine, because somewhere in their history, they drove the Jews out, and they built a thing that's sacred to them. So where David's temple was and where the sacrifice was, that is now that thing. It's a monstrosity from a Christian and Jewish perspective. But if you had to go a little bit further on Mount Moriah, this way to the north, you're still on the mountain, actually to the highest point on the mountain, you come to a place called Golgotha. And Golgotha was where? Golgotha is part of Mount Moriah. And so Jesus, a thousand years after the temple, is going to die on exactly the same hill that Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, that the temple would be built and the lambs would be sacrificed all through the year for sin and worship would come to God. And then finally the descendant of Abraham, the one that was promised to Abraham, the one that Isaac is a shadow of, would die on the same mountain. And God's trying to show a map to his people and saying, don't miss how I'm going to save. Okay. So Abraham goes to Mount Moriah, and we read this in Genesis 22, from verse 3 to 5. And so if you want to turn there with me, Genesis 22, verse 3 to 5. I wish that electricity would come back on, but we do all right. You're still with me? Yeah. It's easy if it's on the board, but if you're still with me, that's awesome, because... It's a technical breach, like I said. Genesis 22, verse 3 to 5. So Abraham's told, go to that mountain and sacrifice your son. And early the next morning, Abraham gets up and got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his own son Isaac, or his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place, the mountain, and the distance. And he said to his servants, 
Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now again, there's shadows of Jesus in every single thing that's happening here. And so Jesus was also commanded to go to Mount Moriah to die. Did you know that? Because he was part of a Jewish nation. And the Jews had a system that went like this. One of the greatest festivals the Jews had was a festival of Passover. And at Passover, wherever you lived in the world as a Jew, you would travel to the temple. And you would go to the temple to actually offer a lamb for your sin. You would sacrifice a lamb to atone for your sin, for your failure. And the lamb's death would ultimately mean that you can walk, even though you're guilty, he pays the price and you walk away free. And so every single Jew, by the Jewish law, had to go at the time that Jesus went to be crucified, to Passover. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He actually was crucified on the same day that the, the, the priests would be examining the lambs to make sure that they were perfect. And that's just profound in itself, that of all the days of the year, that was the day he died, the day that the Passover lambs were going to be sacrificed. Secondly, we read, Abraham saddles his donkey. Do you remember when Jesus rode to, into Jerusalem to be crucified? What did he come in on? And so the son of Isaac, the descendant that God promised, comes into the city the same way, into the area the same way that Abraham would have come in and Isaac would have come in years before. Then the Bible says, Abraham travels from Beersheba, which is about 70 kilometers to go to Mount Moriah. The Bible tells us it takes him three days. That's about right. You do the sums. So the Bible tells us that on the third day, he gets to the mountain. Do you get the three days join a dot for you at all? Because if this mountain is going to teach the world how to worship, it's going to take three days. Something's going to happen over a three-day period. And over a three-day period, something is going to take place that will enable the nations to worship God. And Jesus would be crucified, and he'd be put into a grave for three days. And then... God starts to show that he's going to resurrect Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant, through Isaac. And this is what he says. Abraham says this to the servants. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now, how do you say that when God's told you to kill your son on that mountain? And Abraham clearly, in the language of, and even in English, we will go and we will come back. And so you go, well, Abraham, how did you... Well, you're not going to do it? No, he was going to sacrifice his son because he was going to obey God. And so what we learn is this. In Hebrews 11, verse 18 and 19, and listen to this. It's talking about Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son. And this is, even though God had said to him, through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And in a sense... He did receive Isaac back from the dead. And so what happened is Isaac is going to go onto the mountain and Abraham believes somehow that God might raise him from the dead to fulfill the promise that he's made. The descendant, the offspring that God promised would do it, would go to Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah. He would be killed on the mountain. He'd be put in the grave for three days. And then we will see him again. And Jesus appeared to over 500 Christians after he'd been crucified by the Romans, stabbed through the heart, thrown into a grave, he appeared raised from the dead, and 500 people said they saw him 
raised from the dead. You know what's cool about that? You know that Muslims will die for their faith. But you know that their faith is based on this. A man called Muhammad went into a cave. An angel, he said, appeared to him and told him to write stuff down. He didn't want to, so the angel threw him onto the ground. And then he got scared and eventually he got up and he wrote. And he comes out of the cave and he says, I'm a prophet and basically a whole religion is built upon that. Now that takes a lot of faith to believe in. He didn't do anything amazing and never raised the dead. He made one prophecy in his whole life. A prophecy is something that ahead of the time that he said would happen. And this is what it was. I will go to Jerusalem before I die. Which he did. It's a bit like saying I'm going to go to Bloomington before I die. <laughs> it's the only prophecy he did. Jesus comes. And every single story in the Old Testament points to him. He raises the dead, heals the sick, calms storms. A whole nation seizes and flocks to him. He then is crucified by the Romans who know how to kill somebody. They want to get rid of him. They want to make, they know this is not, you don't slip out of this one. And to really make sure he's dead, they stab him with a spear through up into his heart. He is stone dead. Whipped to the, just the beating they gave him would have killed him. There's no antibiotics in those days. They didn't sterilize the whip before they beat you. And it lacerated your flesh. And three days after he's put in the grave, he appears to over 500 people in one time. How many are here? There's probably 230. 500 people saw him raised from the dead. And when Rome tried to crush this new thing called Christianity, they took the children of those 500 people and began to say, if you don't deny what you said you saw, we'll kill your children. And we're going to kill them brutally. We'll feed them to dogs and lions. We'll torture them. So they would watch their children get killed. And they said, we cannot change what we saw. This is not blind faith. We saw him. We touched him. We ate with him. We saw him raised from the dead. Their wives would be tortured and killed. And they wouldn't change their story. Do you know Simon Peter, the great apostle? Do you know how he died? The Romans caught him. They said, well, now we've got one of the ringleaders of this Christian sect. Let's crush him once and for all. And they tortured his wife to death in front of him. Kept him in the Roman, in a Roman arena. And they tortured him, tortured her. Cut her ears off, cut her breasts off. Tortured him, saying, deny what you said you saw. And he kept saying to her, remember the Lord and be strong, my dear. Until they eventually killed her. And then they said, we're coming for you. And he said, if you're going to kill me, they said, we're going to crucify you like your Lord. He said, please, you're going to crucify me, crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die the way he died. This is not blind faith. We saw him raised from the dead. I thank God that they suffered like they did, I must be honest. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Because, you see, my faith isn't just some blind blase. Somebody went into a cave and wrote something down and I must believe him. Our faith is the fact that they never changed their story. None of them did. They went to the grave saying, we know what we saw. We know what we touched. We knew Jesus. He was raised from the dead. Later, we get a bit more detail from the story. In Genesis 22, verse 6 to 14. Genesis 22, 6 to 14. You can turn there with me. Oh man, you looked up, I got all excited. <laughs> I was like, it's on. <laughs> Alright. It's hot tonight, eh? 
stuffy. So it's a complicated preach and it's a stuffy now. Are you still with me? Yeah. Okay. Genesis 22, verse 6 to 14. This is what it says. So Abraham is going up the mountain. He, he took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It's a good question, eh? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Let's look at this. Firstly, the wood. He places the wood on his son's back to carry up the mountain. What happened to Jesus when the Romans decided to crucify him? They put a wooden cross, they put it on his back, and he carries it. And this is what we read in Matthew, sorry, in John 19, verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So you've got Isaac as a top carrying what's going to kill him. You've got Jesus now, the, the, the true descendant of Abraham, carrying his cross, the wood on his back that will kill him. Secondly, Abraham says, and then Abraham lays him on the wood, and the Romans lay Jesus on the cross. Thirdly, you've got Abraham saying, you know, Father, Isaac says, where's the lamb? And God will provide the lamb. Now, here's the thing. It's supposed to be Isaac, and I'm guessing that Abraham, when he says God will provide the lamb, he's just trying to cover what he's about to do from his son. I mean, imagine telling a boy, well, my boy, the bad news today for you is that you're the lamb. So, 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 so he's covering. It's like, I, how do I tell my boy this? This is huge. Do you know what the Jews believe? Listen to this. The Jews believe, the rabbis believe, this is in their writings, it's not in our Bible, but the Jews say, that the shock of what Abraham had to do was so big that Sarah died on the journey. She couldn't bear the thought of losing her son. Did you know that? This was not a small thing that God asked him to do. And he goes up, he says, Dad, where's the lamb? Where God will provide the lamb. He doesn't know it, but he's actually prophesying that God is actually going to provide a substitute for the son. And here's the thing, for us, the Bible says, and I mentioned this at the start, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, every human being has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, and the wages or the consequence of sin is death. Do you know who should have died in that mountain? You and me. We deserved because of our heart treason against God. 
But God was going to come and save through the descendant, the singular descendant of Abraham. And everything in the story is showing what that descendant is going to do and how he's going to save. So the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 to 6, for there is one God and one mediator, one who uh, mediates one who reconciles to, between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Okay, so a ransom is something that I give. In other words, if, if someone's got a gun at her head and she's going to die, I can say, wait, I will pay you this. I will ransom her. I will let her go. And now we see that Christ would be the one who would be the ransom. God would be the one who would be the ransom so that she would go free from what she deserves and God would be the one who would pay the price. This is how the Messiah was saved. Alright, moving on. Abraham's, we read in Abraham's story, when they reached the place God had told them about on Mount Moriah, there is a place on Mount Moriah that God said, this is where it goes down. The Bible tells us in John 19 verse 17, when Jesus was carrying the cross, when they reached the place of the skull, and you know what is called the place of the skull? Because it was a place of execution on Mount Moriah. It's the same place that Stephen would be stoned a little bit later. This is the place that the Romans and the Jews, for those who were blasphemous, would be killed. And so Jesus goes to the place of death, and you can imagine that was the place, I, I, I think that was the highest point on the mountain, actually. That was the place that Jesus dies. Then we read, the ram, he's about to sacrifice Isaac, and there's a, there's a, there's a ransom, something's about to take place. And he sees, God says, wait, and he sees a young ram with horns, and his horns are trapped in some kind of bush, and he can't get out. And he knows that God has provided a ransom. God has provided someone in the place of his son. But it's interesting that it tells us that his horns were caught in a bush, because the horn in the Bible is a symbol of strength and power. And so the very creature, its strength and power is the thing that's going to trap it in the bush. And when Jesus comes, why would they crucify him? Because he's of his strength and his power. He did things that no one had done before. He was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He calmed storms, raised the dead, healed the sick. It was the reason that he had those things following him that the Jews wanted to get rid of him. And so actually, it was his strength and power that ultimately caused him to be crucified. And is it a coincidence that the Romans make a thorn crown and place it where? On his head. Where was the lamb stuck on? On his head. So they place a crown of thorns on his head, and it's a mockery of his authority and power. But actually in doing it, we're seeing a shadow of what happened thousands of years before. And this is the Romans that he didn't do it. So the ram is sacrificed instead of Isaac on that mountain. And Jesus is that descendant that will ultimately be the one who dies in Isaac's place. And in your place, in my place. And then Abraham says this. So Abraham named the place. Listen to this. Listen to the, the, listen to the grammar. The Lord will provide. Because on the mountain of the Lord, it will 
be provided. Now hang on, this is after the events happened. The Lord has provided a lamb. So why didn't he call it the Lord provided? Because he knows this is a shadow of how he's going to save. The Lord provided for me, but this thing is a picture of how the Lord will provide. On this hill, Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide a lamb that will be sacrificed in the place of humanity to pay the price for the sin of the world. And it's interesting. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And actually, the, the, the Hebrew literally is this. Jehovah Jireh. You know that song? Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Remember that? That old song from the oldies. And then you guys were like, what? Hebrew. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah is the name of God. Jireh is the provider. And now we start to see something interesting. Abraham says, God himself will be the provision. God himself will be the one who is the provision on the mountain of the Lord. This lamb isn't just going to be a son of Abraham. This lamb, this one that dies in Abraham in Isaac's place, is actually going to be God, Emmanuel, God with us. We read that earlier. And so the one that dies in the place of humanity on the mountain isn't just the son of Abraham. It is God who miraculously is conceived through a woman called Mary and who will live his life perfectly for us, and will ultimately go to the cross and fulfill exactly what Abraham, years before, thousands of years before, was seeing by faith. And it says this, and listen to this, in Zechariah. Zechariah is another Old Testament prophet. He writes in about the year 520 BC, so he's talking 520 years before Jesus. This is what he says. And I will pour out on the house of David, God says, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace, what's grace? Unmerited favor and supplication. They will look on me, God says, the one that they have pierced. And they will mourn for him, as one would mourn for an only child and grieve bitterly. And so what is God saying? Who is that lamb going to be? God says they will look on me. God is going to come through the loins of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. And God is the one who will be the substitute. God is the chosen one that will die for the sin of the world. He'll go into the grave once he's killed on that mountain for three days. And then he'll return alive to his brothers. And all nations will be blessed through the descendant, the specific descendant of Abraham and of Isaac. And then this, and I'll finish with this. And Abraham will be called the father of many nations. In fact, and again I want to come back to this. Abraham, you have a relationship with me, God says, like a son to a father. But I'm changing your name because you're going to have many sons. And actually, take the name Abraham and Abraham. What God, what Abraham will become, and through the loins of Abraham, many those who are aliens and foreigners from God will be brought close to him through the one who would die on Moriah. And they would call God Father. They'd be adopted into God's family. And this is what it says in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all, listen to this, who received him, who's him? The descendant that was promised to Abraham, to all who received the promised offspring, that one person, 
to all of them, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God wants you to have a relationship with him like Abraham did. That you would know him like a good father. And some of you guys are shocking fathers. But God is a good father. And he wants to bring us into his family. And the way he would redeem and save us would be through that one single offspring, a descendant of Abraham, promised 4,000 years ago. And so to finish this, I don't know everyone here, but I know this. The promise was that God would want to save all nations, every single person. The Bible says God takes no delight, even in the death of a wicked man. He wants to save everybody. There's no one good, the Bible says. I mean, some of us look at others and we think, well, that guy's worse than me. You don't understand. From God's perspective, we all fall short of his glory. The Bible says there is no one righteous. No, not even one. All have turned away together to come worthless. And God, the Bible goes on to say, has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. So that by believing in the substitution death that he gave for you, you could come into relationship with God and have your sins given you as you turn towards God to say, God, I want to turn away from the rebellion that I've been living in. I want to turn away from driving you out of my life. I want you to be my God. I want you to be my Father. And I will come as a son into your household, adopted into your family. And I will love you and serve you and know you and walk with you. Like Abraham did 4,000 years ago. That you and I would become a child of Abraham. And we could say, God, we could call him Abba Father. So I don't know if you, but I do want to give you an opportunity if you've never done that. Because the Bible, Jesus said, there is only one mediator. There's only one way. There is only one way that we can be saved. That, that happened on Mount Moriah. The descendant, the offspring of Abraham, was the one that God, he would open the doors for us who are aliens to come to God through faith like Abraham and believe in the sacrifice and turn towards him and to start to follow him as Abraham did. God wants to bring you into that relationship tonight, right now.